On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the July 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be a terrific conversation. So my first guest, um, I have Dr. Tracy Doyle, instructor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Dr. Yvonne Rosas from Pulmonary and Critical Care Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. Um, as well as the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Doyle and Dr. Rosas will be discussing their article, Functional Impact of a Spectrum of Interstitial Lung Abnormalities in Rheumatoid Arthritis. Uh, Tracy and Yvonne, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. And then also joining us on the phone is Dr. Gregory Cosgrove, Associate Professor from National Jewish Health in the University of Colorado, both in Denver. He's the Chief Medical Officer of the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation as well. He will be discussing uh, his accompanying editorial, Interstitial Lung Abnormalities in Rheumatoid Arthritis Are Common and Important. Greg, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, Tracy, why don't you uh, start us off? Um, what, what did your group find? What were you looking at? Uh, where did you get such a large database? Set, set the stage for our listeners. Absolutely. So this study uh, was looking at the spectrum of interstitial lung disease in subjects with rheumatoid arthritis and we looked at both um, functional physiological abnormalities, symptoms, and their underlying rheumatoid arthritis disease. And this is based on some previous research that both our group and others had done, showing that there's a, actually a lot of people who have rheumatoid arthritis with interstitial lung disease, numbers up to 10% of people with clinically evident disease, but a significant um, large percentage of subclinical disease as well. We demonstrated 33%, but other studies have reported up to 60 7% of people with uh, RA have subclinical ILD. When you take into account the fact that about 1% of the U.S. population at least has rheumatoid arthritis and you extend that globally, we're talking about a large number of people. So not only is it a large number of people, but it also is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Despite all of this, we actually found that it's relatively poorly understood and under-recognized. So we thought this was an area that we could do a lot of research in. So we took the Brigham Rheumatoid Arthritis Sequential Study, or the BRAS study, which is a single-center perspective study. It's observational, longitudinal. It's been going on since 2003, and they currently have over 1,400 RA subjects in their study, and they collect information on everything you could imagine, all sorts of um, baseline demographic variables, rheumatoid arthritis parameters. They bank blood samples and everything else, so it's a great resource that we were able to look into. And what we did is we looked at everybody who had had any CT scan done of the chest for any clinical indication. And we basically ultimately subdivided those into people with no interstitial lung disease, so 45%, subclinical interstitial lung disease, and this group had 40%, and then clinically evident disease, which was another 14%. And then we looked at all the parameters I had mentioned above and showed that patients with RA tended to be older, male, and former smokers which isn't surprising given that interstitial lung disease and a lot of different cohorts is associated with those parameters. What was interesting was that um, the subclinical disease group, in addition to the clinically evident group, also already started to have some symptoms and impaired pulmonary physiology. They also had more severe articular RA, more likely to be rheumatoid factor and anti-CPA positive. And also interesting was the fact that we looked at treatment with both methotrexate and TNF-alpha inhibitors, and that did not change how many people had interstitial lung disease, because that was one question we had, if this is all treatment-related disease or RA-related disease. And what we took away from this is not only 
is, you know, RAILD, a significant disease in the community. But people with subclinical disease who haven't come to their doctors and said they have symptoms are actually already starting to exhibit limitations. And since we know that 10% of people have clinically evident disease, we're hypothesizing that a certain number of these patients with subclinical disease are going to progress. So we feel like this is a great opportunity to look at subclinical disease, and that might be a time to start to intervene, to look at you know, the natural history of this, and also to look at the effect of smoking. Since we know that's a risk factor in general, it might be, at, at least at this point, one of our few ways to actually intervene at an early stage. Greg, what do you think? I think this is really an important uh, set of uh, experiments and, and hypotheses that others have alluded to in the past with relatively small cohorts that have been difficult to convince the general population of pulmonologists and primary care physicians. But I think with the work that uh, Dr. Doyle and Rojas have put forth, it really emphasizes the importance of heightening awareness, uh, not only within the rheumatologic community, but also other individuals, pulmonologists as well as internists, to understand that uh, rheumatoid arthritis is not only an articular disease, but a systemic disease, and, and to further underscore the importance, just the significant morbidity and mortality that patients with involvement of the lung really manifest. Well, primary cardiac disease is important in the United States. It's further important in rheumatoid arthritis and significantly affects mortality. And, and subsequently, uh, it, as they demonstrated in their article and, and highlighted the importance of interstitial lung disease and, and the really poor prognosis that patients manifest, which is comparable to probably the most common interstitial lung disease, or at least one that we believe is most common, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, but if you extrapolate the data they have in, in terms of the prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis, we begin to see that the, uh, the role in which rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease may have in terms of the burden of disease for interstitial lung disease patients. And, and so the significance of their work, I think, can't be, really be highlighted um, as really one of the sentinel studies that pushes the field forward. And, and I think rather than stopping and, and really advocating it actually uh, for their work. It advocates for really further uh, investigations with prospective longitudinal studies that are more uh, able to understand the pathobiology. And, and I think this provides a window that many different researchers can capitalize on, those with basic interest, those with translational, as well as the clinical interest, because we may be able to identify an at-risk population, um, whether it's genetic or not, um, certainly is an area that can be further investigated um, in terms of any polymorphisms that may be pertinent that haven't been investigated yet. But certainly um, with earlier disease in, in the fibrosing lung diseases, it may provide an uh, opportunity to intervene in terms of process randomized clinical studies to begin to understand whether or not therapies uh, may be successful. And anecdotally, I think um, all those that work in the field identify that despite aggressive and appropriate therapy for the articular manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis, we see many individuals who uh, present with progressive interstitial lung disease despite adequate therapy for the systemic manifestations or the articular manifestations. And conversely, um, one of the biases we have in our clinic is we see several patients who present with 
their lung symptoms well before they have the articular manifestations. And, and so really suggesting there is a dynamic process. And I think one of the ways in which we can better understand this is to begin to characterize the disease, as Dr. Doyle had mentioned, to uh, really understand the clinical features, which allows us to better intervene and, and understand the pathobiology, which is really rapidly advancing from the articular manifestation component of the disease. But we've been limited probably because of a lack of awareness to better understand the pulmonary manifestations and uh, one component also to highlight that Dr. Doyle had mentioned was really the linked tobacco smoking, which is important in many different lung diseases, but there are basic pathobiologic mechanisms which appear may be important in individuals who smoke uh, that may perpetuate and some argue propagate the disease in rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, I was, I was struck, and I would love if you guys would expand on it. I was struck, uh, you know, other than I, I suppose, you know, generically as a pulmonologist, we're going to try to, you know, tell everybody you need to quit smoking. But realizing how much involvement tobacco has, at least as a risk factor for uh, rheumatoid-associated interstitial lung disease, I mean, it clearly it, it begs a, uh, for us to be aggressive about smoking cessation more than just sort of our patented discussion we have with our patients, um, that this should be an integral component of, of our disease management. I completely well, Kyle, agree. Kyle, this is this is Ivan. I I couldn't agree more in terms of, of the importance of smoking, and uh, it's it's hard to add on to what Tracy and Greg have already mentioned. So I'm going to take a step back, so the listener can understand uh, where Tracy was coming from when she generated her hypothesis. Our group has been interested uh, for some time in the concept that uh, um, early disease, disease detection is actually feasible in patients who are at risk of developing interstitial lung disease. And when we started doing some of this research some 10 years ago, we thought that the low-hanging fruit uh, were folks with uh, familial interstitial pneumonia in which you would expect a high prevalence of subclinical disease. And we went along to publish uh, an article in 2007 describing these findings. And then uh, later on in 2011, we actually hypothesized that as smoking, as you just mentioned, Kyle, is such an important risk factor for interstitial lung disease, if we actually looked at a population of patients who were smokers, uh, we'd actually find a significant amount of subclinical interstitial lung disease and went on to describe in a population of 2,500 smokers that the percentage of patients who had interstitial lung abnormalities were somewhere around 8 to 10%, and this has been replicated uh, by multiple centers, by multiple groups now in three different continents. And so smoking, there's no question, is a, a significant risk factor for interstitial lung disease. And we have, to some extent, acknowledged that in IPF, but I think it holds true for many of the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias and also other diffuse parenchymal lung diseases. So I think one of the, one of the uh, nice things of, of, about the work that Tracy has done is that she has gone on uh, to demonstrate that this is relevant in a subset of patients in which you could do focused early detection. Uh, and as Greg nicely mentioned, if you take into account the percentage of individuals, at least in the U.S., that are affected with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, we're looking at somewhere around 30 million people. And if Tracy's study and others uh, are actually correct about the number of patients who have subclinical interstitial lung disease, we're maybe talking about 15 million people in the U.S., have and are not aware of the presence of their interstitial lung abnormalities in the context 
of their rheumatoid arthritis. And I think where Tracy would like to head in the future is to really try to identify the subset of patients who actually uh, are progressive and we think uh, are the precursor clinical stage of that 10% that Tracy described. So maybe Tracy in the future is going to be able to put forth either a, a, a group of demographic features, maybe even biomarkers, that would allow her to risk stratify these 50% of patients who have subclinical interstitial lung abnormalities and predict those that need closer follow-up, a more um, robust discussion, as you pointed out, Kyle, regarding smoking cessation and other risk factors that I think we'll identify as we do these studies. But let me just mention one last thing, Kyle. Uh, I think one of the take-home messages for me over the last years doing research in this area is one word, awareness. And one of the things that really struck me uh, is kind of an anecdote that I'll talk about now is I made a presentation several years ago to a group of rheumatologists, and the chief of rheumatology at that center, which will remain unnamed, <laughs> uh, once I uh, did my discussion regarding this topic, we had published a similar article in 2008 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, basically told me this entity does not exist. I have never seen a patient with interstitial lung disease in my RA clinic. And I was First, shocked, and second, uh, I, I then realized that this is part of the problem, uh, that as a community, pulmonologists and rheumatologists have to practice together in order to better um, designate which patients are at risk and which ones should be followed more closely. So I think that, once more, Tracy's work uh, is, is another layer of information that provides credence to the fact that we have to look more carefully at patients affected with rheumatoid arthritis. So, so you all both come, come from centers that are obviously uh, excellent in interstitial lung disease and rheumatologic uh, disorders and, and frequently collaborate together. What is what right now, and I, and I recognize that, you know, taking um, data like this and then saying, okay, here's going to be sort of a new set of guidelines on, on how we should all be managing these patients. But so take that aside. Let me just ask, how is it, how is it done at your centers? If you, what, what are your rheumatologists doing right now? Or what, as pulmonologists, are we asking and working with our rheumatology colleagues who have obviously a large cohort of rheumatoid patients of how often should you be considering a scan or PFTs? Um, when should you get the pulmonologists involved at the time of rheumatoid diagnosis or as, you know, any question of a symptom remotely shows up. Just kind of curious as to, to how it's done at your centers, even if that's not necessarily definitively guideline-based, just more from a practical perspective. Tracy? Certainly. So, um, so at our center from the interstitial lung disease side, all of our new patients are seen concurrently by both a pulmonologist and a rheumatologist. And that's, I think, another take-home message of this is anybody with ILD, you should consider RA. It's so common that they should, you, know, you should ask the basic questions and screen somebody who you already know has ILD for RA, so going at it from that angle. But then also, as you said, from the other angle as well, a rheumatologist here, um, you know, especially with our interstitial lung disease and the research we've been doing, are quite aware of the fact that you know, this is a significant problem for their patients. And certainly we would advocate asking at every clinic visit, are you symptomatic? Do you have a cough? Are you short of breath? And at least starting there. And it would be great to see into the future having even basic spirometry available in the office for patients with symptoms or, you know, when to get CT scans. And I think that's the big question. Certainly if somebody's symptomatic, 
um, I think it's, it warrants probably getting a CT scan. If they're asymptomatic but they have some of these high risk factors, that's when we get into where we need more research. It'd be right. great to say, you know, you're male, you're a smoker, you have, you know, high rheumatoid factor and this biomarker, you know, whatever, and be able to put together some kind of a risk prediction model where, you know, they can check off boxes and if they have a certain score, they're going to get a CT scan or they're going to get followed more closely. But that's where the more long-term longitudinal studies come in because what we want to identify is not just the 30% with subclinical disease, but the 10% of those that are going to have the clinically significant disease. And that's the link that I think in a lot of the subclinical literature and all the high-risk groups, that's what's missing is how to identify which people are going to be the ones that progress. So, but Kyle, just to, to and, and forgive me, Greg, if I jump in right now, and, and maybe you can talk sure, a little bit about Colorado after that. But, but, but I think your your question is critical, Kyle, because you're asking what happens in the rheumatoid clinic, not what happens right. in the ILD clinic. Right. And, and I think that um, even with the proximity, we're 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 steps away from uh, the uh, rheumatoid arthritis clinic. Uh, it, it's really going to be, uh, I think, an effort of provided structured studies that actually provide that information and highlights the importance. I think that our empirical uh, understanding of what, what, what patient may or may not be affected is not sufficient to actually convince, uh, convince our rheumatologists uh, that this is a problem. And at the Brigham, uh, uh, our RA group is an extremely, extremely productive academic group. And uh, they're very focused on, on doing a lot of epidemiologic studies. And as a matter of fact, Nancy Shattuck, who is the principal investigator of the BRAS study, is strongly committed to actually looking at the problem of interstitial lung disease. But even with that awareness that I'm describing, I think for the most part, most rheumatologists are not actively asking the questions that would help them risk stratify these patients. And it's difficult. I understand where they're coming from because of their articular disease, it's very difficult to evaluate dyspnea and a limitation to movement right. uh, and also the age at which these patients are affected. So I think that the, the, these data that, um, that uh, Tracy has generated, uh, hopefully in the next uh, five years or so, is going to allow us to, to, to generate some data suggesting that uh, we can put a set of risk factors and maybe biomarkers together to help rheumatologists effectively address this. And I think part of this uh, manuscript, and, and Tracy can talk about it, shows some very interesting data regarding blood tests that rheumatologists already show, uh, already use, sorry, uh, uh, to assess their patients, and they could serve as some of these risk stratifying uh, tools that I that I'm describing. But I think, to be honest, Kyle, even though we're in a very uh, a refined institute that does a lot of research, and we have a strong commitment from our RA group to identify ILD, I think that to uh, the rheumatologist's credit, uh, we they still have uh, so we still have to provide them with the right tools to actually identify which are the patients who are at risk for interstitial lung disease. The last thing I'll say regarding this is we're fortunate that we have Paul De La Ripa, who is uh, one of uh, uh, key opinion leader in RA and ILD. He probably knows more about interstitial lung disease than most of our pulmonologists in our group. So we're blessed by somebody who, as Tracy described, attends every clinic in our ILD group and supports us tremendously. And he's trying to actually educate his colleagues regarding how uh, we can approach this important problem. But I think uh, uh, as, as a community, we're going to have to uh, generate the tools so that the rheumatologists will be uh, better able to risk stratify these patients in clinic. Fantastic. Greg, what do you think? Well, I, I, I agree completely with uh, all the comments that um, Tracy and Ivan had mentioned. And 
further expand upon it that uh, 10, 15 years ago when I started in our interstitial lung disease clinic, by definition, everyone who comes to see me has pulmonary symptoms. And so there's always a referral bias, but I think what's been alluded to is trying to identify those individuals with a paucity of symptoms, or at least um, uh, those that are not as debilitating as we commonly see walk in the doors uh, into the interstitial lung disease program. And an emerging experience that occurred as we became more meticulous and more resources were available to characterize patients we went from perhaps identifying 60 to 70% of the cohort of interstitial lung disease patients who, who we thought had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or at least an idiopathic interstitial pneumonia. We began to see those individuals as having underlying connective tissue diseases and most commonly rheumatoid arthritis. And so as time evolved, much the same as it sounds like at the Brigham, we began to integrate, but more specifically hire rheumatologists with the, the mantra that we are a respiratory institute, and uh, the, the focus is on lung disease here. And so our rheumatologists see predominantly all patients and only patients who have lung-associated abnormalities and accompanied rheumatoid arthritis or connective tissue disease. And so it's a biased and, and uh, an audience that is quite, quite aware of, of lung health and or dysfunction. And so integrating them into our program, and I think as mentioned, it's not something where they're sent off to another building and we get a letter three days down the road or, or two weeks down the road. It's across from the interstitial lung disease uh, clinic space is the rheumatology program, and they're directly interacting. And when a patient is evaluated, it's a pre-screening process to begin to coordinate those visits so that they have appropriate uh, rheumatologic evaluation, and, and it's the, the multidisciplinary approach that's been espoused for patients with idiopathic interstitial pneumonia I think really is important with those with systemic disease, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or other collagen vascular disease, and we learn more by working together, and, and it's not simply the rheumatologist, but our radiology colleagues that need to understand the clinical presentation and so that their interpretation of the CT abnormalities, if they're subtle with perhaps airways disease that isn't present in other uh, fibrosing lung disease, but we do see in individuals with rheumatoid arthritis. It's the subtleties that I think are alluded to that help us better understand the diagnosis and care for patients. Um, and so that's how we integrate and hopefully come up with the best diagnosis for individuals. How to raise awareness is a really important um, part. And, and as I mentioned before, I don't think raising awareness of interstitial lung disease experts across the country, while that is an important goal and something that we push forward to expand the number of interstitial lung disease experts, we will only capture a, a minority of the patients, as Dr. Doyle had alluded to, that there's a large number of individuals that are not being identified early enough, and, and perhaps that's in the rheumatology clinics when they present with their arthritis, but I would argue perhaps it's also in the primary care offices when someone has rheumatoid arthritis and perhaps uh, they develop respiratory symptoms. While the first diagnosis should be an infectious process if they're on uh, disease-modifying agents that suppress their immune system, but it, it should be in the back of their minds that this is a disease that can affect the lungs. And uh, we may begin to see those individuals and then 
define the at-risk populations and, and move forward in terms of who do we image further. Well, it, it's straightforward if someone has pulmonary symptoms, but I think, as Tracy had mentioned, we'd like to identify those individuals early before they have predominant symptoms. And, and I think subclinical is the, the term that's used in the paper, which is very appropriate, but the other term that's very appropriate and kind of as I read through it and um, with my co-author, Arya Fisher, who's one of our rheumatologists, um, the unrecognized component in the statement in the article was very important. And that you look at their cohort, there are a lot of individuals who had definitive abnormalities, physiologic, spirometric, that did not necessarily have overt clinical symptoms. And so they were unrecognized to not only themselves, but their providers. And, and so it really emphasizes the point of identifying those individuals early with relatively non-invasive testing. And, and we know age is important in interstitial lung disease and in many different diseases, and we know tobacco is. And so we can hone in on an at-risk population just based on their clinical symptoms. But as we move forward to understand the severity of disease, um, then it would be nice to have those longitudinal prospective studies to guide us to, to identify the subset of populations. That, that may be at risk and, and also may be benefited from appropriate treatment um, when we identify a treatment that is necessarily beneficial for the interstitial lung disease, which is probably the next comment that we still have yet to identify treatments that are truly effective. And it's not because people haven't looked, it's just because we actually haven't done the appropriate studies in a large randomized manner um, because I think, as Ivan had mentioned, the, the awareness isn't there. and. And there have been several grant proposals that have um, met similar skepticism as I think uh, the presentation that Dr. Rojas performed um, several years ago that many individuals don't believe this is necessarily a problem, uh, which is uh, quite a terrifying concept if you look at the data that, that they published in their paper that this is a significant burden on the population. And so I think it's important to have the cohort just as they have at the Brigham and, and we have at National Jewish and University of Colorado, which we actually have an autoimmune lung center where it's a cohort of individuals working together. Dr. Fisher, my co-author, is um, a rheumatologist uh, and, and one of the members of the center. And we have an additional uh, 15 other individuals who are focused on looking at interstitial lung disease and the components of autoimmunity. And then you can branch out and look at the basic scientists that benefited from the translational scientists, the clinical epidemiologists. So I think as we come together, not just at centers of excellence um, on the coast or, or in, in select areas, I think we expand uh, our reach and, and focus on uh, other centers across the United States. Uh, one of the limitations, though, is if in a busy community practice, whether it's pulmonary or in rheumatology, is the, the time that it takes to evaluate patients. So I think Dr. Doyle's point of really honing in on a specific criteria so that they can be easily identified and their care facilitated in an otherwise rather cumbersome and, and quite complex group of patients is, is kind of a task that needs to be accomplished so that um, we're not simply asking everyone to be referred uh, to relatively uh, select centers, but it can be disseminated across and, and utilized by a large number of individuals, uh, both in the community as well as uh, at centers of excellence.
Let me, let me ask the three of you just your general opinion. If if you have a newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis patient in a rheumatology clinic, and you know everyone's taking the history and so forth, but any reason not to consider at that stage or to advocate for the idea of getting a set of PFTs and a CT scan as a baseline? Sure, in a research setting, it would be ideal. But do we do we think we have enough interest and enough data to suggest that that should be something that we should be considering? If I was a rheumatologist. I certainly think uh, PFTs would be very reasonable. The CT scan gets into the risk-benefit of the radiation versus right. the benefit, and I think that's where we need to have, you know, an additional step kind of in between those two things to identify people who are at higher risk. But I don't see any reason why PFTs can't be easily done in every patient because then three years from now when they develop symptoms, we have a baseline, which would also be extremely helpful. So let me let me let me be the devil's advocate here. Um, <laughs> so, Please, that was the that was the purpose of the question. <laughs> so uh, I, I think PFTs can be misleading, um, not because uh, not when they're positive. Obviously, when we see reductions in lung volumes and changes in diffusion, one should pursue this. And I, I would expect that any primary care provider in the community or pulmonologist or rheumatologists uh, would follow up on these findings. My concern would be the reliance on pulmonary function tests as a means of ruling out interstitial lung disease. Our studies in um, various um, um, populations at risk of developing interstitial lung disease suggest that at least 50% of patients who actually have subclinical interstitial lung disease can have normal lung function. And so um, I think PFTs are, is, uh, should be an important part of the assessment. Um, however, I think once more it's our, it's our job to tr probably identify uh, epidemiologic risk factors uh, and, and maybe um, try to uh, add some biomarkers to trying to risk stratify populations. So if you have a, a young 40-year-old female who has normal PFTs, uh, I don't know what the positive predictive value of that aggregate of data is, but uh, my hunch is that it's going to be probably a negative CT scan, whereas if it's a 65-year-old male with a history of smoking uh, and a positive biomarker for fibrosis, uh, I think that's going to be quite positive. So um, I think PFTs are reasonable, um, but they're definitely not um, sufficient. Let's let's talk. You you know, there's been discussions of biomarkers and and so let's talk about the role of anti-CCP from your data. So our data definitely showed that individuals with um, either early interstitial lung disease or more significant interstitial lung disease had a higher chance of being anti-CCP antibody positive. Um, so that is certainly one thing that I think could be factored in looking at their CCP positivity, looking at their rheumatoid factor level, and use those as biomarkers that are already measured. I mean, we're looking at a lot of experimental biomarkers, and those right. would be great once we can roll them out, but ones that they already have in the clinic would be ideal. Okay. And, and I think another issue with uh, the citronated um, peptides and antibodies against them is their predictive value in those who may not have been identified to have developed classic rheumatoid arthritis. I think that it's one of the difficulties that, that we have on a regular basis, individuals who have high titer anti-CCP 
who have definitively abnormal lung parenchyma and interstitial lung disease and yet do not necessarily meet criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. I think the data would suggest that the um, specificity is high and the positive predictive value is uh, significant for the eventual development of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but occasionally we see individuals that actually are um, not attended to appropriately or screened in the reverse for the potential for developing classic rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and so it, it really is a heightened state of awareness to better understand the performance of the study that it is uh, fairly specific and, and, and sensitive for rheumatoid arthritis. But as we learn more, we understand that, that the disease we know of rheumatoid arthritis may have many different presentations, and the classic one is seen in the rheumatology clinic, but I would argue there's a different presentation that we may be seeing in the interstitial lung disease clinic, and it now provides an opportunity to better understand that, and all these questions are fundamentally important. And I think I'm still reeling from the PANTHER study where we assumed therapy um, with a triple drug combination was effective in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis for many years and did not organize a prospective randomized study. And we assumed that we were doing or, or providing excellent care without the evidence to support it. And, and we learned a very hard lesson that in, in that study that was recently released that there was harm provided by uh, providing care in the absence of evidence to suggest safety as well as benefit. And so one of the things I worry about as we move forward is that we need to be very rigorous in how we assess not only the um, screening tests that we consider for these patients, uh, but also as we look forward in, in considering treatment that we actually have an opportunity to do it prospectively appropriately, and then when we advocate for the guidelines that, that were mentioned previously, that they're truly evidence-based. Um, that does not necessarily happen overnight, uh, but I think lessons learned suggest that we should do it appropriately so that we provide the best care of patient, for patients with RA. And in the meantime, I think we'll gain tremendous insight into the pathobiology, uh, the natural history, and, and hopefully therapies to, to better care for these patients, and it's, it's quite obvious that, that the therapies for their lung disease may be significantly different than the therapies utilized for the synovial abnormalities, as well yeah. as the cardiac disease they manifest. Well, let's talk about that, because in the articles, you guys both mentioned that rheumatoid arthritis, ILD, death rates are increasing, while overall, you know, our management of interstitial, or I'm sorry, of rheumatoid arthritis, you know, has generally been improving, and I mean, it's still a, a, a debilitating and, and horrible disease, but that, that we're doing a better job, uh, as our rheumatology colleagues are, I guess, while it seems like us in pulmonary, we're dropping the ball here. So what, give me, I'd love to have some hypotheses as to, you know, is this, is this a story of, of there's a diff, completely different disease going on that we're all labeling as rheumatoid arthritis and that, we, you know, we really ought to be considering these as different diseases? Or is it like what you were just alluding to, Greg, that we need to be aggressively pursuing a, a, a you know, randomized trial approach? of disease or drugs geared towards a fibrotic type disease state as opposed to the immune modifying drugs that we're typically using for rheumatoid arthritis. I think well, Carl, I think I think one of one of the issues um, may have to do maybe independent from rheumatoid arthritis as we 
uh, have improved our knowledge over the 50, last 50 years regarding what are true risk factors for cardiovascular disease, we've been able to uh, modulate uh, the etiology of what once was commonly a common presentation was a heart attack. And so uh, striving at trying to uh, improve endothelial function, trying to prevent atherosclerosis, uh, and thereby impacting important outcomes like heart attacks and strokes, uh, we've been able to change uh, the natural history of human disease. That was our leading cause of death. And it's, it's falling, although it's plateauing now, it's, it's fallen dramatically over the last 20 years. And I think in part that reflects some of the changes in outcomes in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So I think as we, as we get a better hold of very common problems like hypertension and, cardiova- and other cardiovascular events, I think it's going to become more evident that other diseases of aging like fibrosis are going to become more prevalent. And this is not only occurring in rheumatoid arthritis. There seems to be evidence that there are increases in the rates of the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias, including IPF. And once more, I mean, it's possible that this is related to environmental exposures, but I would actually suspect that some of the exposures that that in the past were responsible for the development of IIPs have decreased, uh, whereas, uh, and therefore would not explain why we're having more cases of fibrosis. I also think that we've been able to diagnose fibrosis for a very long time effectively since the 80s. I think we have the tools that would allow us to effectively uh, make this diagnosis. So I don't think it's a change in the performance of physicians who are evaluating patients with interstitial lung disease. I think we're getting older and we're having uh, less cardiovascular events. And the next problem we're going to have to deal with globally is lung disease. And that's the case for COPD as a leading cause of death now. But I think it will also apply to the interstitial lung diseases. We're living long enough to develop other problems. Diseases of aging, and unfortunately, fibrosis is a disease of aging. And especially in an RA population where we're treating the RA better and preventing the cardiovascular deaths, we're uncovering, I think, a lot more of the interstitial lung disease, which, you know, as people have more severe disease and a longer duration of disease, they're at a higher risk for developing that. And also, one thing that was mentioned in, um, in both of the articles was the fact that UIP is, you know, the predominant subtype of interstitial lung disease that you see in RA, which is unique out of the connective tissue diseases. Most of them are more of an NSIP pattern. And just like IPF, I think UIP, uh, you know, has with it, sorry, the RA UIP has with it a poor prognosis. One thing I'd love to see would be to have a subsegment of the IPF trials include RA UIP, because right now pretty much you know, everybody with a connective tissue disease or any other explanation for their UIP is excluded from those trials. Right. But since they have a very similar outcome, it would be great to have those trials applied to these people because we can run our own trials, and that is going to take time. But this is something that could be effective almost immediately if they started including these subjects and we could look into treatments separate from their articular disease, like you mentioned, and separate from the immune-modulating treatments, something more directed at that UIP pattern. What do you think? And I completely uh, agree with with both comments. I I would be reluctant to say that it is a different disease, um, that RA, um, it's a different manifestation within the lung. Perhaps the milieu in which the the abnormalities occur, the response is different. Uh, 
than what we see in the synovium, but certainly there is inflama there there are inflammatory abnormalities, and it really speaks to the question when you see that UIP lesion in RA versus seeing it in individuals who have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Is there a common pathway that perhaps uh, an antifibrotic agent could attack? And it may explain why uh, the course of disease that in individuals who develop progressive fibrosis, whether it is from RA or we see in IPF or even in chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And, and I could imagine there are three divergent initiating factors in all those diseases, but they all can present with a progressive, severe, and fatal fibrotic disease. And, and so it, it may provide the opportunity, and, and to be honest, in reading the article, the exciting aspect that it really is an opportunity to identify that at-risk population where in IPF perhaps we're missing the diagnosis by eight years from the time they come to medical attention. We may be able to identify that at-risk population with rheumatoid arthritis and the excitement would be to detail the abnormalities and intervene and perhaps understand the disease. And it not only could be applicable to patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but we may have insight as to why some patients go on, as Dr. Dole mentioned, to develop a progressive fibrosing disease based on their clinical and, and uh, molecular diagnostic studies or biomarkers. And that feeds back into the generalized fibroproliferative state that we can explore and understand how best to, to care for those patients and understand the, the pathobiology and develop tailored therapies rather than global ones such as corticosteroids or anti-inflammatories which help individuals but they're fraught with a lot of significant side effects. Um, and so it, it really is a unique opportunity as we move forward to better understand the disease. But the reluctance is we're really at the beginning of our understanding, and that's the excitement because there's so much to achieve and so much uh, that we can help each other as we work together. Fantastic. Let me, um, I always end with asking if there was any other kind of final thoughts or comments that anybody had, uh, something that we didn't touch on that you were, gosh, when's he going to ask me that? <laughs> um, is there any kind of final thoughts or, or questions uh, that you all wanted to expand on? I would I would like uh, Kyle if, if I may I'd like Tracy Please. to um, explain uh, the limitations of her study and why this is not uh, the best product she thought she wanted to develop and how she's going to address the problems that this study has. Sure. Certainly. So I, I think the main limitation from the study is the fact that the CT scans, PFTs, and all the pulmonary parameters weren't done prospectively, which just echoes everything we've been talking about this whole conversation in that it wasn't on the radar, it wasn't something that they set up to screen for from the beginning. So everything was retrospective, they were clinically indicated, there was a large lapse of time sometimes between um, when the you know, visit was done versus the CT scan versus the PFTs. So I think those were um, you know, a lot of the main limitations and then that lim limits limited how many subjects and how much data was available for each subject. So you'll see while everybody had demographics, you know, we're talking three or four subjects that actually had, you know, a six-minute walk test within some of those categories. So what we really need is to extrapolate this into prospective trials. And what I would love to do is to go back to BRAS and prospectively recruit a sub-cohort of BRAS to start screening now with CT scans, PFTs, and follow those subjects out, both the ones that we know have the interstitial lung disease that we've identified both through this study and through other uh, registries that we have, but also 
take a segment of the asymptomatic subjects and start looking at them and follow them and get that prospective data, both PFTs and CT scans at certain longitudinal time points, biomarkers, and that would be the gold standard. I know that's what everybody would love to do, would be able to have all these data points, follow them out, identify who has subclinical disease, who progresses, what identifies those subjects, and put together a risk prediction model, both for disease at time point A and those people that are going to progress. And Kyle, if I may just add a couple of sentences to what Tracy just said, Please. is uh, I think the I have to give credit to the NHLBI that recently has focused on trying to uh, uh, identify what are the resources available to do primary and secondary prevention uh, in uh, interstitial lung disease in all forms of lung disease. And they have a strong commitment expressed by Gibbons and all the leadership at the NHLBI uh, to uh, try to uh, promote and foster uh, and support grants uh, that will address the issue of early disease and risk factors. And we can't forget history. Uh, the framing and heart studies t uh, taught us a lot about how we were, how we could identify risk factors that then could uh, lead us to the prevention of, uh, I described re irreversible phenotypes uh, like a massive heart attack. We're at the same uh, turning point in lung disease right now in which we would really like to look uh, at the risk factors and the very early stages of disease where we think we could um, make uh, a greater impact in modulating the disease and waiting for somebody to complain of a symptom, which most of the times in lung disease means that more than 50% of your lung function is gone. Right. So I think that we're trying to take these first steps by looking at these early phenotypes, but I, I, I just want to end by saying that that is not the goal. Our goal is really to identify risk factors in individuals who have no interstitial lung abnormalities, and that's where we would really like to be in, 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 in 10 years, hopefully. It is quite an exciting time, and I think really this is the, the beginning of, of a tremendous amount of uh, effort and opportunity to, to make a huge impact in, in lung health and, and medicine in general. Perfect. Everyone, I want to thank you so much for your time and congratulate you also on obviously some fantastic work and, and really enjoyed uh, our conversation today and enjoyed reading uh, both articles. Definitely for our listeners, uh, I strongly encourage you, as always, to go uh, read these articles uh, to, to, to see in detail what we talked about uh, today in our podcast. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks to everybody. Thank you. Congratulations to the both of you and your team. It was a phenomenal piece of work. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Greg.